Let me say that one more time. How blessed we are to be children of the Most High God. I thank the Lord for allowing me to be a part of the Church of Chicago 10th year celebration. For a few moments, I want to share a few thoughts with you from the words of the Apostle Paul found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and the words are as follows. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Our message today is going to be a little bit what was on the board, but a little twist as well. And it's entitled, Where is God? Where is God? All of us here today who have been graciously chosen by God to be a part of his glorious family have experienced a few times where we have asked ourselves, where is God and what are you doing? I know for myself as a 17-year-old new believer in Christ, I was not prepared for the journey called sanctification which would include disappointments, sorrow, pain, and loss. In my early years as a believer in Christ, there were times in which I found myself saying, where is God and what are you doing? As I was preparing for today's message, I came across this cute story about a married couple who had two little boys. They were ages eight and 10, but they were excessively mischievous. They were always getting into trouble and their parents knew that if anything was stolen in their small town, their sons were probably involved. The boy's mother heard that the local minister was good with disciplining children and he only lived a few blocks away, so she asked if he could speak with her boys. The minister agreed, but asked to see them separately. The mother brought her eight-year-old first in the morning with the older boy to see the minister in the afternoon. The minister, a huge man with a booming voice, set the younger boy down and asked him a sternly question. Where is God? The boy's mouth dropped open, but he made no response. Sitting there with his mouth hanging open and his eyes wide open, the minister repeated the question, but this time even sterner than the other time. Where is God? Again, the boy made no attempt to answer, and the minister raised his voice even more, and this time shook his finger in the little boy's face. Where is God? The boy screamed and bolted from the room, ran past his mother, ran directly home and dove into his closet, slamming the door behind him. When his older brother found him in the closet, he asked, what happened? The younger brother, grasping for breath, replied, we are in big trouble. God is missing, and they think we did it. <laughs> this morning, I will address three points. The God who provides certainty, the God who cares, and the God who calls. The God who provides certainty. And Paul wrote these words, and we know. Paul doesn't say, and we feel. 
Paul doesn't say, and we hope. There is no doubt in the Apostle Paul's declaration. There is no sense of uncertainty. But praise the Lord, Paul declares with great certainty, and we know. He is convinced. He is persuaded. He knows that he knows that he knows that he knows. Nothing can defeat God's sovereign's will for his children. Nothing can separate us from the love of the Lord. Nothing can separate us from God conforming us into the image of his wonderful son. The Apostle Paul is dealing with an absolute truth, not suppositions or queries or vain hopes. There is no hesitation, but a strong declaration. God will do what he said he would do. He foreknew me, he predestined me to become conformed to the image of his son. The Bible says these whom he predestined, he also called, and these he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We have not yet received our glorified bodies, but our glorification is so settled in the mind of God that he speaks in terms as though it's already done. It's been accomplished by him. The Apostle Paul knew without a shadow of a doubt that God was in his life and God was working in his life. No matter what he was facing or what he would face, God's hand was on his life. The early church and the Apostle Paul himself had experienced the loss of loved ones, imprisonment, beatings, rejection, ridicule, and sometimes even from loved ones who rejected Paul because he had left the Jewish faith to become one of those who believed in Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father. And he says, and we know. We know that our God is faithful. We know that our God is faithful. We got one yes. <laughs> God's faithfulness is dependent upon his character and not ours. We find that in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where it says it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And this part I especially like, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Mm. Even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. The Apostle Paul was certain because his faith was anchored not in circumstances, not in feelings, not in emotions, not in culture, not in traditions, but in the faithful one, the one who cannot deny himself. As we sit here this morning, are we able to say, and I know? As we sit here this morning, are we able to say, I know that I know that I know that I know that my God is working in my life. That his hands are on me. Mm. My God is conforming me into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, the next thing that we see is the God who causes. And that's the next portion of this wonderful verse because it says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. 
God causes all things, not some things, not most things, not the majority of things, but all things. And this is one of those wonderful areas that you don't have to know Hebrew to know what the word all means. All means all. All things work together for good. If we know, if we are honest, we would prefer not to have any troubles, any issues, any drama, any problems, but God ultimately uses troubles, issues, drama, and problems to produce good in the lives of his children. The difficult, sometimes challenging situations the saints of God face are part of our sanctification process. We can't get sanctified if we never go through anything. We can't get stronger if we never go through anything. We can't get closer to God if we don't need to reach out and hold his hand as he holds our hands. God is working for our good. Work together is not written as a past tense verb, but it's written as a present tense verb. And some of you might say, well, what's exciting about that? What's good about that? The action of God is ongoing. That means it's not something that he did in the past and he's done. He's currently doing it even as we're sitting in these seats today. The term means to cooperate with, work together with, help someone to obtain something, and I really like this last one, or to bring something about. God is working in our lives to bring something about. <laughs> he, he's helping us to obtain what he wants us to obtain, and that is that glorification, that is that conformity, that when someone sees us, they see Christ in us. God uses our problems to direct us, to correct us, to protect us, to perfect us. God is faithful to work all things together for good. Unbelievers have a different concept of good. Good for unbelievers is normally based or founded on personal happiness. It's all good so long as I have good health. It's all good as long as I got money in the bank. It's all good if I have more sunny days and rainy days. Their concept of good is different from children of God or supposed to be different. An optimistic unbeliever may be heard saying everything is good. It's all going to work out for the good. The cup is half full, not half empty. But as believers... We should have a different concept of good. Our concept must not leave God out of the equation. It must not leave out God's will for our lives. It must not leave out the sovereignty of God. It must not leave out the righteousness of God. It must not leave out the mercy of God. It must not leave out the grace of God. It must not leave out the peace of God. It must not leave out the fact that God can only determine what is good. Man can't determine what is good. God determines what is good. Now let's be clear, these Verses do not teach us that everything that happens in our lives is good. That would be foolish. That would be idiotic. That would be absurd. 
A mother aborts her unborn child. A mother's 12-year-old daughter is sexually assaulted by her living boyfriend. A husband receives a call. His wife of 20 years was killed by a drunk driver. A husband commits adultery. What is good about this? And the answer is there is nothing good about these events in and of themselves. The good is the fact that God is working these situations out to bring about, to help us to obtain conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It has been said God is committed to use by his grace every experience in our lives to make us more like Christ. In God's infinite wisdom, in his awesome, gracious love for us, he is like the potter, molding us, shaping us, into the image of his son. All of us sitting here have gone through some storms. All of us sitting here have gone through loss of loved ones. All of us have gone through disappointments. And that's the time that Paul is saying you really need to know you can say, and I know. See, it's easy to say, I know, it's easy to sing songs, it's easy to praise God, it's easy to say hallelujah when everything is going all right in your life. And you're saying everything is good because now you're no different than an unbeliever because it's good because everything's going the way you want it to. But are you able, when you get that call at midnight, still be able to say, and I know. When I go to that doctor and he looks at you kind of funny and you say, man, I don't think this report is going to be too good. Are you going to still be able to say, and I know. Some of us have got those calls in the middle of the night, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. You say, I know it can't be anything good coming out of this phone call. Then am I able to say, and I know. Rick Warren once said, God's ultimate goal for your life on earth is not comfort but character development. See, a lot of us are thinking that because I'm a believer, God's job is to make me happy. God's job is to make me comfortable. And God said, that's not my job. That's not my primary job to make you comfortable. That's not my primary job to make you happy. That's not my primary job to make you like me. Your primary job is I'm trying to work on your character so your character will look like my son, Jesus Christ. And I'm not going to be able to look like Jesus Christ and have the character of Jesus Christ unless I go through some things. But when I'm going through them, I know God's hand is on me. And he's molding me and he's shaping me to be what he wants me to be. It has been said the degree to which I become more like Jesus today will determine the degree to which I experience the blessings of being a citizen of heaven, of God's kingdom. See, some of us are believers, but we're not experiencing the full benefit, the abundant life that God wants us to even experience while we're down on this earth. But we can't experience because we're not seeking him to allow him to mold us and to shape us into the image of his son. Conflicting situations and experiences in life, good and bad, righteous and sinful, success and failure, are woven together into an instrument for good in the life of the believer. 
And that brings us to that third and final phase, the God who calls. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 is not an inclusive promise made by God to everyone. Let me say that one more time. We live in a world where we're tolerant, we're inclusive. That's the key words that we all like to hear. We think those are good words. But Romans 8.28 is not an inclusive promise made by God to everyone. It is an exclusive promise, and he tells you what the limitations are. To those who love God, to those who have been called. If you have not been called by God, then you cannot love God. Let me say that one more time. If you have not been called by God, you cannot love God. And if you've been called by God, you're going to love God because the two go together. Loving God in Romans 8.28 is not a condition, but a description of every believer in Christ. Those who love God are not some group of super believers, but is a category in which all believers are found. The moment we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we became part of God's family. The only way we were able to accept Jesus Christ is because he had to have chosen us to be one of his elect. It is imperative that we keep the focus on God and not on us, because if we put the focus on us, it can easily lead to false teaching. This verse is not teaching God works on our behalf in conjunction to the degree that we love him. Let me break it down. If we slack in our love, then he slacks in his care for us. If we work hard at loving God, then he works hard at loving us. See, some of us thought that if I just love God a lot more, he's going to love me more. But God is saying, it's not about your love for me. It's about my love for you. If we get it turned around, we begin to take out God's beautiful grace because we do know everything we receive from God is not because we deserve it. It's because of his grace. And sometimes in our heads and our minds, we thinking, I deserve this because I've been so good. I deserve this because I've been so holy. I deserve this because I come to church every week. I deserve this because I sing in the choir or I preach a sermon. And God says, you don't deserve anything you get from me. That's my grace. That's my grace. And we just butcher God's grace and start thinking about us. And start thinking we deserve something. It mistakenly teaches the extent to which God is working in our life is some type of reward based on our good works. 
And I think that's why some believers become very frustrated and even angry with God because they start saying, wait a minute, God, I've been trying to live right. I've been trying to do right. I've been trying to do this. And why is this now happening to me? Why did this person I loved, why did you take him away? I was going to work every day, there on time, being a good servant of yours. And why do I get a pink slip just like this person who don't even know you? Please don't miss this. We are to love God first and foremost because he first loved us. We are to love God not for the benefits we receive. Sadly, there is a danger in the church today, a danger of loving God's provisions and God's blessings without loving him. I won't get invited back no more, but I, 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 got a, I got a church home to go to, so I, I got to worry. Wanted to get the car started, so we, you know. It's a danger. And some of the churches have fought because even the way we witness to God, for God, even the way we evangelize to God, we don't talk to people about what their commitment is going to be, how their lives are going to be changed. All we talk about is if you don't want to go to heaven, you got to accept Jesus Christ. It's like we got to sell Jesus in order for somebody to accept him. That's our responsibility. To let him know, yes, it is a wonderful gift of God if you come to know his son, Jesus Christ. But once he comes in your life, he's not coming to ride shotgun with you. He's coming into your life to take it over. Can't be two masters in your life. You know, it can be one. And Jesus says, I'm it. Mm. God has promised to sovereignly and faithfully use our weaknesses, our problems, our drama, our unharmonious issues, as well as the good things that are happening in our life to conform us to the image of his son. He will not waste one thing, one experience, if it means making us more like Jesus as a result, he is faithful. I like to, to cook. is one of the things that David and I both have in, in common, and, and I've been cooking since I've been around 13 or 14 years old. I remember my first cooking class was in sixth grade in summer school, and as soon as I went in there, it was like the angels were singing. And my first job was McDonald's, and it was all right to, I'm going to date myself, and some of you older ones remember, you had different stations that you worked at McDonald's, and one of the stations was a fry station, and you know, that was kind of boring. I said, this is not a challenge, and then we used to make shakes back then by hand. We didn't have no direct draw. We had to put the stuff in there, stick it on the thing, and it was spinning around. So the first day I worked there, stuff was spinning everywhere. But then after a while, I got that down pat. Then they put me on the window, and I said, okay, this is all right. But then one day they said, you're going back to the grill area. The angels sung again. I said, I'm at home in the grill area. And when I was prepared for this message, I was looking at this one source I was looking at, and it had this wonderful illustration. It says, most kitchens have blenders. These blenders are designed to take independent foods and integrate them 
coagulate them, unite them, interface them, and create something new, bigger, and better than any one item could be on its own. A blender takes these items and crushes them and forces them together so that what started out as separate, unrelated things now become amalgamated into something wonderful. What a cook does in the kitchen when using a blender to mix ingredients is what God does with us in the universe. He is a consummate blender. He has an absolute amazing ability to take unrelated things and come up with something bigger, better, and more beautiful than what he started with. He can take our messes, he can take our tears, he can take our drama, he can take our disappointment, and he puts it in his wonderful, mighty blender, and he begins to blend it all together. And we came in as wretched sinners, and God just begins to take all these things in our lives, and before we know it, we begin to look a little bit more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. Then another problem comes in our life, another issue comes in our life, another heartache comes in our life, and God just blends that together, blends that together, blends that together, and then he starts to look more like Jesus, more like Jesus. And God said, I'm not going to be done until you go to glory, because when you you go to glory, you're going to look like my son, Jesus Christ, and you're going to be covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, and I'm going to be able to make that look beautiful because I'm God. And that's what Paul says when he says, I know. See, some of us think we know, but then something comes in our life and we find out, I, I, I didn't know as well as I thought I did. But don't become discouraged when that happens, because that's part of the process. God wants us to see us the way he sees us. And sometimes we falsely think we're further along the journey than we actually are. So God in his love has a way of reaching down and saying, let me bring you back to reality. Now, all of us know that when these times happen, we're normally not sitting up there saying, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We're normally sometimes even mad with God. But God is so loving that he keeps on molding. He keeps on shaping us. He keeps on conforming us. Where is God? He's exactly where he's supposed to be on his throne. And on his throne, he's working everything in my life and everything in your life, if you are a child of God, for your good. For your good. So if there's someone here today who's going through, and you are a child of God, claim that verse. If you're not a child of God, don't claim it. Because naming and claiming ain't going to work. If you're not a child of God. But if you are a child of God, you are a loved child of God. Because God doesn't have any children that he does not love. Amen? Amen. Amen.